My name is David Paterka, and you can remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading from Micah chapter 8, verses 1 through, sorry, Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. It says, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusations. Listen, Oops. you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. You may be seated. We are continuing the Here For It sermon series. So thank you for being here for it. <laughs> today, today the sermon is called uh, Here To Bring Justice. So I feel uh, like we are all Marvel characters, your favorite Marvel character. We are here to bring justice. <laughs> um, let me uh, just open with a prayer before we jump in. Jesus, we love you so much. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for how you love us. God, uh, we just invite you to get all of the glory this morning. God, may, be this, may this be a stage for you to be exalted. May every song that's sung, may every word that's spoken, uh, may each of our hearts uh, just be pointing glory to you. God, I just desire for your Holy Spirit uh, to do work that we cannot do alone in our own hearts, in the hearts of each person here. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I personally love... Uh, just how practical this sermon series has been. Um, you know, sometimes religion can feel kind of convoluted and vague, uh, just abstract. You know, it can be a bit confusing um, how we approach a relationship with Jesus. But uh, I believe that the Bible, um, Jesus, he's very direct, very clear, and it does not have to be abstract. It does not have to feel uh, vague. And so I've, I've really enjoyed, you know, Humphrey's message on Jeremiah chapter 29. 
I think it might be the first sermon I've ever heard where uh, the context of Jeremiah chapter 29, 11 is preached. Amen. <laughs> Oftentimes we can take, you know, the Lord has good plans for, plans for me to prosper me, you know, not to harm me, to give me a hope, give me a future. We can take that out of context and just put whatever ideas that we think God's plans are for us, what we think will prosper us and say, God, these are God's plans for me. But we saw in you know, verses 1 through 10, the Israelites in exile in Babylon, their enemies, they were at war and they've been taken slavery into slavery and they're just waiting for God to deliver them again. They're thinking, this is the plan that God has for us. And Jeremiah says, seek the prosperity and the welfare of the city that God has carried you into exile. For in the prosperity of your enemy's city, you will find your own welfare. Woo! <laughs> Jeremiah is telling them, hope for the best for your enemies and actually seek their prosperity. For in their prosperity, you'll find your own. It's like, I don't know if I like God's plan for me. <laughs> and Romans chapter 12, uh, you know, verses 9 through 21, uh, Fred preached last week. Um, one of my favorite passages in scripture. It's highlighted, you know, there's a square around those verses in a, a highlighted neon orange. Um, and it's just an incredibly concentrated list of commands. And I loved, you know, Fred took us to the context of that passage and said, hey, you know what? Romans is saying that this is only possible with God. This is not a list of do's and don't do's just for the sake of us feeling burdened, like, my goodness, I got to try to do better. I got to try to stop doing all this stuff, you know, as if it's our burden to carry alone. But we're taught, no, this is something that you can only do. You can't be successful in this apart from depending on, on Christ. So I love that. Now today we're looking at Micah. Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In some of the research, I found a description of verse 8, um, and it said, this is one of the most direct descriptions in the Old Testament of what God wants our lives to be. So one of the most direct descriptions in the Old Testament of what God wants our lives to be. So again, just incredibly practical, incredibly direct. Our relationship with God does not have to just be theoretical, right? It does not have to just be intellectual. It does not even have to just be emotional. Our relationship with God is meant to look practically. It's meant to change practically how we live and what we do, what our life looks like. So I want to jump into a little bit of the background of who Micah was uh, just for a minute so we can understand a little bit about the person that's writing this in chapter 6. So Micah uh, grew up in a very small village named Morsheth. And it's in the middle of nowhere, and it sits to the southwest of Jerusalem. So uh, he was, you know, from a village. He grew up in a village. Um, who here grew up in a village? Be proud. Where are my village peeps at? Yeah, woo! Come on. Started at the bottom. <laughs> yeah, so Micah, uh, you know, grew up in a village. The fascinating thing uh, that we see about Micah is just how he wasn't intimidated to communicate to people in power and people who were very wealthy. 
Um, he had a lot of boldness uh, to speak to people, influential people. One of the other things about Micah is um, just during his, his time, um, he lived in one of the darkest points in the history of the Jewish people. And so um, this is right after the kingdom, you know, God's chosen people, the kingdom uh, of the Israelites has divided into a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. And so Micah is seeing this division of these 12 tribes of God's chosen people, his own relatives, his own friends, dividing amongst themselves, not only dividing, but fighting against each other and killing one another. And it's breaking his heart. There's tons of violence, literally hundreds of thousands of people that he's seeing and that he knows that are being killed. Not only the violence of the civil war between these divided two kingdoms, but the violence of an enemy of theirs called the Assyrians that have invaded Israel, the northern kingdom. So uh, it's just a, a pretty uh, bleak time, a pretty uh, difficult time in the history of the Israel, Israelites. So let's jump into verses 1 and 2. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusations. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. So we see Micah setting the stage of essentially a courtroom. But the courtroom is not in a building. It is literally nature. The mountains and the foundations of the earth are the judges listening to, to God saying, I have a case against my people. If they have a case, let them bring it and listen. Listen to me. Listen to them. So it's a pretty intense uh, start to this chapter. God is unhappy with his people in this context. Why is God unhappy? If we jump to verse 8, we can assume he's calling them, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with me. So we can assume that the Israelite people, uh, the people in Judah, again, Micah is from this southern kingdom of Judah. We can assume that these people are not acting justly. They're not loving mercy. They're not walking humbly with God. So one question that I had was, why would someone not act justly? Why would, not, why would someone not love justice? And the, the first answer that I thought of was, you know, if someone is doing something wrong and they don't want to stop doing that, they want to continue doing something wrong, then they're not going to love justice. They're not going to want justice. They're not going to want someone to act justly toward them because they don't want to get the punishment of the wrong thing that they're doing. So we see, again, we can, we can come to the conclusion that the Israelite people are walking in, in evil practices and they're not wanting to change. Um, and Micah is calling them back. Um, we don't have to turn there, but in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 16 and 17, this is, is actually the context of Israel, the northern kingdom. And it lists five different things that Israel was doing that Micah is saying, you see what happened to Israel. The Assyrians have invaded them because they were practicing idolatry. They were worshiping Baal. They were offering their own children as sacrifices to Baal. They were practicing magic and sorcery. 
These were the evil things that Israel was doing that they would not repent of that has brought this judgment down on them. So Micah is seeing some things come into Judah, into his southern kingdom where he's living. And he's saying, if we don't change, the same thing that happened to them is going to happen to us. So what do we see in Micah that he's saying, these are the things I'm seeing creep in to Judah. Again, we don't have to turn there, but in chapter 2, verse 2, he talks about the injustice that is happening among his people in Judah. In chapter 3, verse 11, he talks about bribery and corruption that is happening among his people that he's not okay with, that he's saying needs to change, needs to go away if we want to repent and turn back to the Lord and have a right relationship. In chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, he speaks of the dishonesty that's happening among them, the way that they're lying to each other, the way that they're deceiving one another. And he's saying, this is not okay. We need to stop this. And the fourth thing is from chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. And it, he talks about a distrust that's happening within families that's bringing destruction to the unity and to the integrity of the family. For this, man, this struck me right in the heart because I've experienced just a lot of distrust, a lot of destruction in my own family. And so I wanted to just kind of lean into to this one and highlight this one and read verses 5 and 6 uh, from chapter 7. It says, For a, a son dishonors his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. He's saying, this is not okay. This shouldn't be like this. This is a sign that we are off track, that we are not in a right relationship with the Lord, and these things need to change. Not only in my own life, a number of my Malawian friends have shared, they've opened up to me and shared very similar things about, you know, this, this disunity, this destruction of their own family unit um, that has been very uh, incredibly painful. And I think it's just something that, it's a sign for all of us to say there's something wrong. We need God's help to change, to fix this. It's not okay. Oh. <laughs> you guys with me? <laughs> mm. So let's uh, jump to verse 3. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. So this is a direct question. God is asking these people, his people, what is it that I've done to you? Have I burdened you to cause you to rebel against me like this? To commit prostitution in your hearts by worshiping idols? Would you point your finger and say, this is my fault somehow? I want to know. Tell me. Answer me. Imagine if God asked you that question. <laughs> it's like, hey, here's a couple sins that you're doing. Why? Is it something that I've done? Have I burdened you somehow? Answer me. Why won't you repent of these things? What would you say? <laughs> what would you say to God if he's, if he's asking you? About a week and a half ago, I sent an email to a group of some of my friends, um, and I was, I was expecting um, what I was sharing to be uh, just 
good news to be well received. Uh, one of my friends responded uh, pretty negatively and, and just we proceeded to have a conversation back and forth and it, it was surprising to me. Um, and so we went back and forth and I was trying to understand what about my initial email upset them uh, and made them frustrated. And eventually I just took a step back and I said, you know what, I think that, I think that this is not about my initial email. There must be something else going on. Maybe something that I did that, that frustrated them a month or two ago. Uh, and so I asked them, my most recent email about five days ago was, is there something that I did to hurt you? Is there something that I can apologize for? Is there something that I can try to avoid doing in the future that is just causing you to be frustrated, right? And they haven't responded yet in five days. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing back from them to honestly try to better understand where they were coming from in their anger in this situation. So some of us, if God asked us, what have I done? We might go silent and like, oh. Sometimes it's easier to point at other people and be frustrated with them and then all of a sudden when they're asked a question that brings the attention to them, you know, they go silent. On the other hand, some of you may be thinking, you know what, I wish God would ask me what it is that he's done to make me frustrated like this. Because I could start listing a few things. God, why did my sister commit suicide? God, why did my father die of that disease? God, I didn't think at this young age I would be divorced. Why did my marriage not work out? Right? We could just start listing a few things. God, I have this against you. Why didn't you stop this? Why did you let this happen? Whew. For me, I asked the question of my friend in genuine confusion, because I, I don't know, and I still don't know if they're frustrated about something. The amazing thing about God is when he asks a question, he's not actually confused, <laughs> right? He's not actually looking for an answer. <laughs> he's redirecting the attention back to us or to something else. So let's look at uh, verses four and five. I brought you out of Egypt and I redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So I feel like God is asking them, what is it that I've done? Let me divert your attention away from how you feel like I am somehow to blame for your disobedience. And let me just point you in the direction of how faithful I am and how much I love you, how good I am, all the amazing things that I've done in your life. Woo! Man, it's just amazing to me that in our disobedience and our frustration toward God, how does he respond? Is he like, fine, forget them. Let me take a step back. I'll wait for them to come around. No, he's like, let me remind you of how good I am. Let me point your direction, your attention towards something else. I know that in your pain, you're having a hard time seeing just how good I am because it's blinding you. It seems to be all that you can see, but there's something bigger going on here. And I wanna show you. Our pain can sometimes blind us from the beautiful things that God has done and is doing around us. And God wants to free us from that blindness. In the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 13, it says that if we are faithless, 
then he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. In our disobedience, in our frustration against him, in our faithlessness, God remains faithful. He can't disown himself. It's It's so incredibly encouraging to me. I hope it is for you. No matter what it is that you do, God will never just disown you and say, you know what, I'm done. I'm I'm not going to be faithful anymore. He can't disown himself. He'll remain faithful. In verse 5, we see the word remember come up twice. Remember this. Remember that. What is he referring to? It's fascinating that Micah can just write a very simple sentence about a complicated situation. But he knows this is a situation that happened 500 years in the past. But he knows, I know that the Israelites just know their history, that we all know our history so well. I can just mention something very briefly and they'll know exactly what I'm saying. So for us to be refreshed, what exactly is happening with Balak, king of Moab? Moab at this time, 500 years ago, was an enemy uh, and is an enemy to Israel. And this king is trying to destroy them and kill them. He's hired Balaam, who is a witch doctor, and he's offering him a lot of money to put a curse on Israel. Multiple times, they go here, come on, put a curse on them. They go here, come on, put a curse on them. I want to beat them, I want to destroy them. I want to rule over them and conquer them. It's fascinating how Balaam responds. He says, I cannot curse them. How can I curse them if God has not cursed them? (laughs) Right? It's fascinating to see this witch doctor having a little, uh, uh, you know, a bit of a conscience to say, you know what, I could take this guy's money (laughs) and I could say, yes, I've cursed them. And I know it's not going to work because God hasn't cursed them, but I'll just tell him, you know, no refunds. Sorry, you know. (laughs) But he's like, no, 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 you're a king, you're a powerful dude. If I tell you that I can do something that actually I know that I can't, then it would get me in trouble, right? So he's honest and he says, I can't curse someone that God has not cursed. Again, I hope that that is uh, just an encouragement to us here today. Um, You know, um, animism, uh, the the guliwamkulu, you know, witchcraft, it's a very uh, real reality uh, across this country. And I think a lot of people, even Christians, even us, we can live in a lot of fear. Oh no, I'm feeling sick. You know, what if someone went to a witch doctor and cursed me? Oh no, I didn't get the job. I didn't this, I didn't that. Ah, maybe I'm cursed. Maybe someone paid a witch doctor money and cursed me, right? And that's why I'm suffering like this. I'm just amazed that in this context that Micah is using to encourage them. He says, if you've received Jesus Christ as your savior, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your home, in your body. Your body is his home. Your sins are forgiven. The sins that were leaving you in a state of being cursed. You're no longer cursed. How can someone curse you if the Lord is no longer cursing you, right? So please, just let fear wash off of you and say, you know what? I don't have to worry about being cursed. That's not a possibility for me. (laughs) The blood of Jesus is covering me. It's protecting me. God is not calling me cursed. Woo, hallelujah. Come on. The second remember, he says, remember the journey from Shittim to Gilgal. What exactly is is this? Where where are these places? What's going on here? We see the context in uh, Joshua 
chapter 3, verse 1. And this is essentially the very last stage of the Israelites being freed from slavery in Egypt, wandering through the desert for 40 years, and this, this journey from Shittim to Gilgal, is them entering into the promised land, right? So Micah is like, look at what the Lord did for us. This verse 1 in chapter 3, it says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And a little bit further in the verse it says, And the Israelites crossed the Jordan River on dry ground as God miraculously parted the water. So that's what Micah is saying. Remember? Remember? Remember what God did? He brought us into the promised land. Again, I just, I want to encourage all of us to remember, you know, even the moment, if there was a moment that you can point to to say, man, I remember when I confessed of my sin. I remember when I asked the Lord to be my Savior. I remember when God miraculously parted a river of my sin and I walked on dry ground into the promised land of salvation. Woo, man. Micah is saying, look back, look back at the good things the Lord has done for you and remember those things. This made me think of um, communion. You know, in the Bible, Jesus says, hey, when you do this, when you break the bread, when you drink the, the cup, you know, do this in remembrance of me. Remember, right? There's this, um, you know, this diagram that I've seen of like a ledge, a cliff, and then another cliff. And it's like, this is our sin. This is where we are, you know, and this is heaven. This is where God is. And there's a cross that goes across this valley that is totally impossible for us to cross. And it's the cross of Jesus that we get to walk on, you know. And uh, I love that. Uh, I saw something more recently that's a little bit more complex that I believe is helpful. Um, And so it's a line. And then there's a dot when we gave our lives to the Lord and asked him to be our savior. And then two things start to happen. There's a line, the line breaks into two and there's a line going down and there's a line going up at an angle. And the line going down is our increased awareness of our own sin. So we have an increased awareness. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that I was that sinful. As the Holy Spirit starts to convict you, you'll spend the rest of your life being convicted by the Holy Spirit. Oh my gosh, there's something else that I need to repent of. There's something else that the Lord is wanting to free me from. I didn't realize that I was this much of a mess, right? And then the increasing line is our increased awareness of just how faithful God is. Oh my gosh, God knew that I was this sinful. He knows that I'm more sinful than I realize, and I'm going to find out about other sins down the road. But he loved me even in that state. He sent his son Jesus to pay the price of this sin. So then what happens as we progress, and these two lines get bigger and bigger and further and further, is that the cross of Jesus Christ gets bigger and bigger. And we say, oh my goodness, when I was this sinful, God was just that righteous. And he saved me through Jesus. So again, coming back to communion, you know, sometimes I I, I think about, I wonder what the first communion ever was like, right? After Jesus ascends into heaven, And all the disciples, they gather together and they say, okay, Jesus told us to do this, you know, like we did at the Last Supper. He said, do this in remembrance of me. All right, we got Paul here. We got Mary Magdalene over there. We got Peter back here. Okay, let's have this communion. And I just wonder what that would have been like. 
and I compare it sometimes, you know, I just feel like every church most of the time I've ever been in just makes it this very somber experience and they dim the lights and they play a really sad song and essentially they're just like, okay, confess all your sin about how bad you've been, you know, like over the last month or whatever. Um, and I'm just like, I, I would just wonder if they, in this first communion, they're like, man, Paul's here. You guys, let's remember Paul, right? He was on his horse and he was going to Damascus to arrest me because I was in Damascus and Jesus knocked him off his horse. And now he's here among us proclaiming the very gospel that he was trying to stop with all of his might. My goodness, Mary, Mary, you had seven demons, right? You had seven demons. And then you met Jesus. And you just like, you got freedom from all those demons. My goodness, I remember that. Peter, remember when you just like abandoned Jesus? Three times you totally denied that you even knew him. He said you had nothing to do with him. Remember that? <laughs> I remember when Jesus was resurrected and he met you on the shore of the lake and we had breakfast together and he restored you into ministry again. <laughs> he forgave you. He said, I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to tend to my lambs. Isn't that nuts? My goodness. And so again, I think that, you know, recognizing how sinful we are and repenting of our sin is important, but I believe that it's meant to be balanced by a celebration of how faithful and good God is. Woo. <laughs> that he has the power to save us, even in the sins that we're repenting of. Hallelujah, man. I feel like I need to stretch something. <laughs> it's like, Jesus, you're so good. God, you're so faithful. Thank you for reminding me as I'm taking communion just how good you are. God, how is it that I could live for anything else? How did I get distracted by these little petty things? Jesus, forgive me for not seeing you for how good you are. Let me walk away from these things. Help me, Lord. Help me, you're so good. Let's look at Verses 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? There's a lot of questions here. What is it that I can bring to God? What is it that I can offer him that he would be pleased with that sacrifice? What is it? What do I have to offer God to thank him for how faithful and righteous he is? I believe that Psalms chapter 51 verses 16 and 17 answer these questions beautifully. It says, you, God, do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings, but my sacrifice, God, is a broken spirit, a broken and repentant heart, God, you will not despise. What is it that I can offer to God? What is it of value that he would want from me? Is it something that I can do? Is it something that I can sacrifice? The only thing of value that we can give to the Lord is our broken heart and our repentant heart. That's what he takes delight in. 
That's what he's pleased by. <laughs> Man. Sometimes uh, religion has a negative connotation. You know, of course, Christianity is a religion, um, but, you know, it's like the, the image maybe you've heard before where God is at the top of a mountain and Muslims and Hindus and Jew, Jews, you know, and Christians, it's like we're all at different places in the bottom of this mountain and we're all just trying to find the path to get up to God, right? It's like, maybe I can do this. Uh, oh, I got to stop doing this. And I'm just working my way to try to get closer and closer to heaven. But I believe that Christianity is the only religion in the world that flips that totally on its head and says, you know what? It's not about how we can work our way to God. God humbled himself to the point of becoming a human. He humbled himself to the point of dying to pay the price of our sin. And he came to us. It's not about us working our way to him. It's about the reality that he was among us. Emmanuel, God is with us and that he has done the work to save us if we repent of our sin. And so I think it's just important to identify if there's any elements of religion in our hearts. You know what? I think that I have something to offer God. I think he'll be pleased with this. I think he'll like what I have to give him, what I have to do for him. Just let that crucify inside of you because it's, it's very evil and it's not rooted in a relationship with Jesus. It's rooted in a relationship with yourself saving yourself, not Jesus saving you. Religion says, you know, I messed up. Maybe you've seen this meme before. I messed up. God is going to kill me. My dad is going to kill me. But the gospel of Jesus says, I messed up. I need to call my father, right? People who have a religious approach toward God are going to be terrified. Oh, I messed up. Dang it. I've been trying to do my best to offer all these sacrifices to him, and I've made a mistake. God is going to be so angry with me. That's not a relationship with Jesus. A relationship with Jesus is, man, I made a mistake. I messed up. I need your help. Daddy, please come and help me. I can't do this without you. I messed up. It's not rooted in fear. Oh, hallelujah. So let's uh, go to verse 8. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I love that this verse is, I believe it's describing God. God is a just God. God is a merciful God. And so Micah is just saying, let's be like daddy, you know. Let's just act the way that he acts. Let's act justly. Let's love mercy. Let's walk humbly with him, knowing that we can't be like him alone, but we need him to help us. We need him to transform us. That's what Micah is calling us to. We see a similar message in the New Testament where Jesus says things like, you know, forgive as you have been forgiven. You know, James says, show mercy to other people the way that you have received mercy from God. Right? This is the way God is toward us. Let's act the way that God is toward us, toward other people. That's what Micah is calling the Israelites back to. Jesus says the same thing, something very similar to this verse in Matthew chapter 23. And it's in verse 23. And Jesus is speaking to the leading religious officials of Judaism. 
So they're essentially like the pastors. They're like the priests of the Jewish religion. And Jesus himself is a Jew. So he's speaking to his own re leading religious authority, <laughs> right? And uh, in Matthew 23, it's just a list of the woes that Jesus has against the Pharisees. And uh, he says, you know, woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you guys are hypocrites. You give a tenth of the spices that you grow in your garden, you know, mint, dill, cumin, even the little herbs that you grow, you give a tenth of those. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Hmm. He goes on to say, you know, everything that, that you guys do is just for the appearance of other people so that you look good. You're actually like a tomb that looks beautiful on the outside, but inside it's nothing but dead bones. And you guys travel over land and sea to make a single convert, but you make them twice the son of hell that you are. You guys are just a, a bunch of snakes. You're a brood of vipers. Woo, it's intense. Jesus was an intense dude sometimes. <laughs> to the leading religious officials, the authority of, hey, if you want to know about how to be in a relation with God, come to me, I'll tell you, right? He's saying, you guys are blind guides. You're misleading people. And you're leading them right into hell where you yourselves are going. Mm. <laughs> so again, my desire is that none of us have any element of that negative aspect of religion that the Pharisees had, believing, I got something good to offer God. <laughs> God wants me on his team, because I got the skills to pay the bills, baby. <laughs> he wants us to approach him humbly, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with him. God, I can't do this. I can't do this without your help. I'm desperate for you. So let's just spend a little bit of time in prayer the worship team will, will come, play a song. If you would like prayer, if you're like, my goodness, I feel like I've had that approach to the Lord. Just come up, repent, ask the Lord, ask for prayer, ask for forgiveness. So Jesus, we love you so much. We thank you for being merciful toward us. God, if there is any even hint of religiosity in our hearts, in our relationship with you, any unhealthy aspect of fear, of punishment. God, I just pray for deliverance in your name. I just pray that you would speak freedom through the power of your Holy Spirit to our hearts today so that we can walk in joy, so we can boldly approach the throne of your mercy and say, I'm not who I am because of what I've done. I'm who I am because of who Jesus is. Let us look to your beauty and your faithfulness in the name of Jesus.